anyway, uh, it is good to be back and looking forward to uh, being able to wrap up Revelation here pretty soon. I, uh, we've been talking about the millennium. We just kind of finished that in chapter 20. But I want to show you a little bit about what the Jews are thinking, what's going on during that time, what Scripture says. And so even though technically here in chapter 21, the millennium is over, that thousand-year thing is over at chapter 20, the end of it. It then begins in chapter 21, where we're going to kind of move on from that. And I think that's a very important part, one that... uh, I look forward to. I don't understand all of the details, of course, but um, we've already talked in times past that there are varying understandings of what the millennium is. Some say we're in it now. Uh, Some say it's in the future. Uh, Some say it started kind of back in 70 AD. Uh, there's all these different approaches. And as we started out the book of Revelation, I'm going to kind of remind you as we get nearing the end, I think they're all right. That there is truth in all of those. And I am not trying to be economical and, hey, let's just all agree. What I'm saying is is that we as a westernized church have done a very good job of kind of putting God in a box and describing it this way. Well, there are very much amillennial Uh, understandings because God works in patterns and so I can go and show you some things that have happened in the past that seem to be very revelation like but it didn't finish it it didn't complete it and a Jewish understanding is of cycles and all of these patterns that are there and I think that's what we see in scripture and I really think when we assign a certain term to us Oftentimes it can be very damaging because it locks you in a box of where you, you know, are supposed to believe. When we are talking about things like the Nicene Creed or, uh, you know, Westminster Creeds and all of these different things that we get from different denominations, I get a little bit nervous. I agree for the most part, with what's in those creeds. It's not that. What I'm saying is this, is that there was 325 years that went on, and in some cases more, to screw the church up by the time those came. And oftentimes those creeds were in response to some sort of heresy that was going on. And while the Nicene Council was meeting... Yeah, you have a Nicene Creed, all sounds good, but there's also rulings that I think were very non-biblical going on at that time. But what happens in all of them is this. We decide what the Bible says, we put it in a box, here it is, there you go. We hand it to you, this is what you are to believe. And in essence, what happened is we kicked the Holy Spirit out of the church. What's, what does this say? I, well, I don't know. Let me, go to, let me go to my book. It'll tell me what it says. What, what does this say? I, I, let me go ask my pastor. He'll tell me what it says. But the Bible tells us that the Spirit speaks to us through His Word. And we need to be in that Word and we need to be sensitive to that Spirit. And that's why the same reason I think sometimes it can be dangerous for us to be put into this little box of what we, well, I'm an amillennialist. I'm a premillennial. I'm a postmillennial. I'm a pre-tribber. I'm a post-tribber. I'm I'm a a pan-tribber, you know, uh, that it pans out in the end, whatever. (laughs) Point being is I think there's aspects of all of those. And I really think that's how God wrote the scriptures is not, you you can't put them in a box. And like I said, I'm not trying to say, hey, there's truth in everything and what, I'm not, no, Scripture is the the key. But again, as I've said many times, the Jews had more of a cyclical understanding. They call it the midrash, a midrash teaching. Every Scripture verse had different layers, a literal, 
Then there was a figurative and, and kind of more of a, an analogy type thing to it. And so you, you have all these different layers for every scripture verse. So is there going to be a literal millennial reign? I believe there will be. But symbolically, I also believe we see the truth that there has been pictures of it. But the problem is, is with the pictures of it in the past, there's always things that don't fit. There's things that are missing because it is incomplete. So just like, as I've said, Galatians 4, we'll talk about Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael and Jacob and or Isaac. And, and what we see is that's a literal story, true history. But God gave you that history and that historical event for a spiritual meaning, a spiritual truth. Galatians 4 is very clear about that. And we could go through many other examples in Scripture. And so it's the same thing. I think historically we can see some millennial aspects. But it's incomplete. It is... It falls short, and it does not explain everything we see in Revelation. I'm not going to continue on that, but you, you understand what I'm saying. Well, it's interesting that the Jews believe there's something going to be going on during this millennial reign, during uh, this messianic period. In Deuteronomy 31, it says this, in verses 10 and 12, Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years in the year of canceling debts, during the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. So what I want you to note is there's something very specific that has to take place during Sukkot. All Israel gathers together to appear before the Lord and the law is read. Now, we are coming upon Sukkot very quickly here. Um, and... I think this is a, a, a timely thing to be thinking about this. Now, I don't want to go through this in great detail. We will talk more about Sukkot at Sukkot. But to remind you, many of you are going to know some of this already, but I want you to uh, see it in connection with the book of Revelation here. The Jewish sages. Now, I was just talking with, with Andrew and Jamie, too. Remember, when I say Jewish sages here, I'm really talking about pre-Christ Jews, pretty much. And there is a big difference between a pre-Christ Jew and a modern Jew today. A modern Jew today that is not Messianic, they don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they have strayed far from truth. There are roots in paganism, roots in Satanism, it is, it is not godly. It is not good. And this is one of my concerns when we see people understanding the truth of Scripture, and then all of a sudden, oh, I want to be a Jew. The Jews got it all. They've got it all figured out. Well, you need to understand there's a difference between the modern Judaism and biblical Judaism. Biblical Judaism is just the Bible. Modern-day Judaism is not based on the Bible. It's based on other writings and rabbis and people, not God. So when I say the Jewish sages, I'm talking about these guys before Jesus even. They saw the Messiah in places that you don't even dream of looking for him. Anyway, <clears throat> these sages were insistent that during the Messianic age, so they even think that there is a time of the Messiah. Remember, that's why a lot of them missed him. They thought, are you coming now into the kingdom? And Jesus kept pretty much saying no. That answer in itself tells you the millennium has not happened yet. Jesus himself said no. End of story. Now, with that said, what they're teaching and what they taught even before Jesus came, when that Messiah would come, we know him to be Jesus, Yeshua, that he was going to basically teach Torah, the, the, the laws of God, and explain and, and, and 
give an understanding of it. And people were going to be studying the Word of God. A lot. Now, I like that because it's something they looked forward to. Maybe for some of you, you go, oh, that sounds kind of boring. That tells us that we don't understand what we're studying. Because if you truly understand what you're studying, it is glorious. Absolutely glorious. When you are in the presence of the Word, the Word that became flesh, it's going to make your face shine. <laughs> okay? And so we need to really examine and say, what is it that I'm missing? That if they saw that this is what was going to be so grand and so great, and today that doesn't maybe sound fun for some of us. But what they say is that because now, when we're studying the Bible right now, you're getting a foretaste of the Messianic age. You know, we, we can't wait to get to heaven, but yet we don't want it now. Doesn't make sense, does it? So, I think this, is, this blessing is being forfeited by so many in the, in the church today. This is what they saw. Now, they say that one of the first things that the Messiah is going to do when he comes is correct our errors. I can't wait. But think about it when Jesus did come. When the Messiah came the first time, what was he doing? Correcting errors. He was saying, no, you Pharisees, you have added to my word. Now, today, I'm going to step on toes. Churches have done the same thing. We are filled with Pharisees who have added to the word of God truth, things that are not in Scripture. We have taken things out of Scripture that are in Scripture. And I mean, we could spend weeks and have spent weeks examining some of those things. That the church has been filled with error. And because of that, they can't see Jesus right in front of them today. Just like what went on in the time of the Pharisees. Well, we are going to see in our discussion of the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, it's called. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Ingathering. Um, how this ultimately is going to be fulfilled in its ultimate final fulfillment on the eighth day of Sukkot. And I want you to be preparing your hearts now because Sukkot is to be a, a celebration of what we're about to read in, you know, well, in some parts, what we've already read in chapter 20, but also in chapter 21. So, this passage here in Deuteronomy, there's some interesting aspects to this. It's the only commandment in the entire Old Testament where it is said or commanded or mandated for a public reading of Scripture. There's not a Jew that did not know that. Yet, we read in 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 14, it says, did I say Jude? I don't know where that came from, but we see here in Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. I think today we read that and we think, okay, well, I mean, am I supposed to be out on the streets preaching the word? Is this like on, you know, when you get together on Sunday or you get together on a Sabbath and you're reading that, what, is that what this is? I don't think there was any Jew that wouldn't have thought a public reading of Scripture. Oh, the festivals, Sukkot. Because that is the only time the Bible talks about it. Now, you can say, oh, no. remember in the days of Ezra, they got together and there was a public reading, it was raining. Yeah, guess when that was? Sukkot. So this verse here in Timothy is taking the reader to the festivals, to Sukkot. Now, many in the church today have said, oh, those are just a Jewish thing. And so they don't know that because they've rejected much of the Bible 
And so they don't let the Bible interpret the scriptures. They just let, oh, well, that makes sense to me. My mind will interpret the scriptures rather than scripture. Now, another interesting aspect to this, and by the way, in the New Testament, this is the exact word that's used that we see there in Deuteronomy for the yearly Sabbath at Sukkot. So there's a, a connection there just with the words. But look at this in Deuteronomy one more time. Look what it says here. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Who's the you? It's in the singular form. It is not a plural form of you, like, hey, you guys. This is you, singular. But it doesn't tell us who the you is. But in the Hebrew, there's a clue that has caused the Jewish sages to teach that this is the one who had authority to assemble Israel. What have we been seeing in Revelation? God gathers Israel. And so, who is the you? Seems to be the Messiah is going to read the law. Now, doesn't that make sense with so many other scriptures that talk about Mount Zion? The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Things like that. So, only the king of Israel is the one that technically had the authority to do this. However, when this is being written in the time of Deuteronomy, there is no king. The closest they can come is that Moses could fit this bill in the natural. And they do, but it still doesn't explain the singular you. Priests would be plural. And that's why the Jewish sages see this as a messianic prophecy. There is, in the physical, absolutely a truth to that. They did this every year at Sukkot. They did it. The priests did read. But the sages say that's only the physical. There is a deeper level meaning to this. And that deeper level is the Messiah. A prophetic picture of the Messiah that would reign in Jerusalem and proclaim the Torah of God. So, we need to not lose that picture at Sukkot. That this is a picture of the Lord coming back to read the law. We also must remember, if this is a messianic prophecy of his second coming, that means then we're not done and we should continue to read the law. We should continue to study because it is a, a foretaste of what's coming. The Midrash Rabbah of this text says, now again, Midrash is just a commentary on it. When he about whom it is written in Zechariah 9.9, humble and riding on a donkey will come, he will elucidate for them the words of the Torah and elucidate for them their errors. This is just the Jews teaching on that passage there. So, the Messiah is going to come, read the word, correct our errors, all of our misunderstandings. And as I said, that is exactly what Jesus did in his first coming as well. And that is one of the things that should have helped identify Yeshua as the Messiah in his first coming. Not the only, but one of. Here is a guy, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Here's a guy who people said, we've never heard anybody speak like this. He speaks with authority. Over and over, these were signs saying, that's the guy. This is the one. Anyway, the Torah was to be read. Here, we're going to look at some of the verses. Uh, Zechariah 14, 16 through 17. 
Speaking of more of this, I think, millennial reign, more of Revelation 20 here. The survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. You go look at Zechariah 14. We've seen this verse many times before. This is after the first Armageddon battle. Then we see the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is bound. And then we have all these survivors that came with them, their leaders that failed, you know, the Antichrist, false prophet, all them. They're coming up to the Lord to Jerusalem. And they have to worship God or else they're not going to get any rain, it goes on to say. So if you're a farmer and you don't go up to Jerusalem every year, I guess you're in trouble, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, the point being is Feast of Tabernacles is associated with this again. Here is a verse telling you, you will be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. <laughs> And yet, the church today, oh, those are, we're done with those. Jesus fulfilled all of that in the past. As you know from previous Sukkots, yes, Jesus did in part fulfill that. Pictures, but only pictures of what's to come. We'll talk more about that during Sukkot. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3 prophesied, Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. That's Jerusalem, Mount Zion. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Sounds to me like he's teaching us, which would mean uh, you're doing this wrong. <laughs> Good job on this. Did you ever see this? I love learning new things in the Word. I love the fact that every year I learn something new. When you go through that scripture, it's like, where was that? Where was I when I read that the last 50 times? And there it is. It's a living Word, living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, sharp enough to penetrate between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. So, Sukkot is the seventh of the annual festivals. And we've talked about a day being like a thousand years of history and all of those connections at each day of creation patterns a thousand years of history and the seventh day rest of creation is to pattern something. Sounds to me like a literal millennial thousand year reign when the word of the Lord will go out from Zion and he teaches us his ways. Sounds pretty awesome to me. It is a seven-day feast in the seventh month of the year. It is a time when all nations would ascend to Jerusalem. One of those that was commanded, you have to come up to Jerusalem. Remember what it said in Deuteronomy? Gather Israel together so that the word can be read. All of these things show us that this is a foretaste of what Zechariah is speaking of, this, the, the yearly Sukkot. So anyway, we're waiting for this seventh day, seventh month, seventh festival, sabbatical rest. Every time you honor the Sabbath, Every time you take a Sabbath rest, this is what you're supposed to be looking forward to. This is what you're supposed to be putting into your mind. This is what you're supposed to be meditating upon and looking forward to and saying, yes, this is the pattern. Thank you, Jesus. So, with that, that concludes chapter 20 officially. But we're going to kind of continue picking up with that. So the millennial reign ends. The very next thing we have is this in chapter 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. A different earth. A different sea. Well, no sea. But a different heaven. I've said for years that the book of Genesis and the Garden of Eden was a literal place. But don't lose that it was more than just a literal place. It was something that was to point you to something in the future. Eden restored. And this present earth, because it was cursed by man and sin, is going to be redeemed so that, as Romans tells us, that all of creation groans inwardly as it waits eagerly for its adoption as sons for, uh, because it was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. But it's waiting for the adoption of sons to take place so that it too can be freed from the curse. It will eventually happen here. I don't think it happens until chapter 21. Chapter 20, during the millennial reign, regardless of what your view of it is, there is no new heaven and new earth. This one is going to be very different. There will be no moon. Interestingly, the, the festivals are dependent upon the moon. That's why I think it's during the millennial reign that you've got everybody coming up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. There's monthly cycles. But now there's going to be no sun. There's going to be no moon. We're going to, I think in verse 9, maybe it's coming up here where it talks about the moon. Very different. I can only tell you what Scripture says. Can't imagine. Just can't fathom what this is going to be like. Another kind of point of interest here is in the creation ministry that I do, I can't tell you how many times that I have heard the excuse to try and find some sort of millions of years to attach that into scripture somehow. And I always say the only reason anybody would believe in millions of years is because they've been affected by their culture. It isn't because of science. I can show you science that supports a young earth up and down, right and left, everywhere. It's not because of science. It is because your faith in a secular world view. And so you don't want to rid yourself of a secular worldview. You want to bring that into your Christian culture. We're going to talk about that coming up a little bit more here too. But the point being is one of the ways they try to do that, to get millions of years into the Bible, bring the secular world into the scriptures, is they'll say, well, well God had created an earth that had all of these things, he destroyed it. And that's why we have fossils and evidence of death and whatnot. And then he made a new earth. And that's where the book of Genesis then picks up later. So he destroyed the first earth. And I always say, well, now you just destroyed the Bible. Because the Bible has to be consistent, cannot be contradictory. Revelation would have to say the second earth was destroyed. But it says the first earth. This first earth has not been destroyed yet. He had to destroy it. that suggest that he made a mistake? It does not suggest he made a mistake. It suggests that the, the curse, everything has to be made new. And so the corruptible has to become incorruptible. It's just like you. Your, your body... It's either going to die and rot and be raised new or it'll be changed in a flash and a twinkling of an eye. But this body that you have right now, we get better ones. Good. It all has to be made new. Put a lot of miles on this thing. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, that's good news. Um, 2 Peter 3 talks about this. In keeping with his promise, we look or we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. That's what we're reading about here in chapter 21. 
You're going to get some more details in chapter 22 as well. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. That's eternity. The new heaven and the new earth will never be destroyed. There will be no curse. And your name and your descendants' name, speaking to believers, will go on forever. Now, proof of heaven on earth. And what I mean by that is not what I was saying about earlier. What I mean by that is this earth is going to be heaven-like as it's made new. You could see how much time I could go through. Look at all of these verses. All of them talking about that very thing. An Eden restored here in heaven. So, um, like I said, no sea on the new earth, perhaps because there's no need for it. Um, just as an illustration, and since the kids weren't here, I wasn't going to do that, but you've probably seen me do this. I take a water balloon, stick it over your kid's head, and then stick a match under it. I can boil the water in the water balloon. It won't pop. Kids are freaking out, thinking, oh, no, you know, I'm going to get wet. But it doesn't because the water absorbs all that heat, and it takes it away from the balloon into the water and won't pop. So, from a physical, just kind of a cool perspective, perhaps we don't need the sea because there's no sun. That's, the sun brings us light, it's a good thing, you know, but man, it, well, as we see today, sometimes it scorches. And there's radiation, and it's a fallen, burning up, decaying, creation as well. Because of that sun, if we did not have water on earth, you guys would be a bunch of bacon bits. We would be burned up. Turkey bacon. So, point being though, is... God has created this world in such a, a neat, unique way that everything is just perfect. If we didn't have water, we would fry. I don't think it's an accident that this is the only planet we have found water on. Because, as Isaiah says, he did not create the earth to be uninhabited. He created earth to be habited. And that's why earth is unique. Now again, I think there's other things, as you're going to see, there is no sun. Why? Because the Lamb gives us light. We don't need that light. There will not be darkness. And so there are a number of reasons, but I do think from a physical aspect, that may be one reason why there is no sea. You need the sea now. You won't then. So when you read in the Old Testament so many of these verses that speak about end times, we have to remember that there's a difference between the millennial reign and post-millennial reign. And now we're in that post-millennial part here. Um, another aspect of the sea from a spiritual perspective. The Jews really are not fond of water, typically, like lakes and oceans and things, because they see them as a very ominous thing. Now, the reason they do is because of what Scripture records, even. Um, what we see is, where does the dragon come out of? The abyss. Um, things are cast into the abyss. Legion, where does he go? into the waters. They have always viewed it as almost like a holding place of evil. Okay? What you want to do with that, I don't know, but we do know that it was the floodwaters of Noah that buried all the evil as well. Um, so, just kind of an interesting perspective that maybe from a spiritual perspective there is no sea because the sea is a, a picture of a the depths and the abyss and, and darkness and evil. I don't know. Again, not saying the oceans are evil, 
Don't, don't take me that way. I'm just saying it's a picture of that. Okay? Um, Isaiah 65. I love Isaiah 65 and 66. Uh, again, talking about new heavens and new earth. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. Their former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. We kind of touched on that a few weeks ago. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Again, this is post-millennium because there's a new heaven and a new earth. In that new heaven and new earth, he's going to create a Jerusalem that's going to be a delight. If you study the history of Jerusalem, it has never been, from a worldly perspective, a delight. <laughs> that There is no city that is more war-torn and persecuted throughout all of history than Jerusalem. Well, and again, Solomon's reign is a picture of the Messiah coming. Which again, Solomon, it's interesting, he is anointed king twice. Jesus, twice. And so there are those pictures, again, that is a physical thing. I'm not saying there weren't times that Jerusalem was good, but over throughout history, over and over, it's just that narrow time. But there is going to be a time where it says, be glad and rejoice forever. Jerusalem will be renewed. It's not going to be the one that many of you are going with us to go see. It's going to be a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth. When you go to Jerusalem today, there is something special about it. I've talked about that before. But there's also something very evil. There's so much evil that's there as well. You'll see that too. So just kind of keep that in mind. The other thing that I find fascinating here too is I will create. In Genesis, I use this all the time as well. I love these Genesis and Revelation. They just fit. You know, we often talk about God creating the sun and the moon and the stars. Do you know technically that's not true? If you go to Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That word create, bara, it means to make out of nothing. Nothing. That goes against all scientific laws, which is why the Big Bang can't happen, because the Big Bang would have something. Well, where did something come from? Well, something came from nothing, they tell you. That breaks the first and second law of thermodynamics. It, it's impossible. So if you're going to be an evolutionist and you're going to believe in only empirical science, only things that you can see, only scientific laws, then you cannot believe in the Big Bang because you're already breaking your own rules. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word bara, he makes something out of nothing. At that point, I believe he created all the laws all the periodic table, but he hadn't, didn't do anything with them. You can see it even in your English translations of Scripture. Highlight that word create in verse 1. Now look for it again. Day 1 separates light and darkness. Day 2, okay, he the firmament, no creating. Day three, day four, making. He makes the heaven. He makes, or makes the, the stars, the moon. The word make is asaph in Hebrew. In English, make. You don't see the word create. Where's the next time you see the word create there in Genesis? What was it? Not quite. Day five. Day five, you will see when he makes 
The fish and the birds, it says he creates. Why? Because something new that was not in existence had to be brought into existence. Well, you got the periodic table. You got the laws. You can form and fashion the sun and the moon and the stars and all of these things. You can make stuff. You can even make an animal because an animal is made out of dirt. So why does he have to create? To me, that's very important because there's something new. What's new then? Life. You want to know where life came from? There it is, day five. Something that was not in existence. Prior to day five, there was no life. And now we have something new, life. Then day six comes. Oh, look, that word, there it is again in day six, if you've got it there. It says that God made man. He created man. Now you got the dirt to make man, form and fashion. You got the life to give to man. But you have something else that is created, something new to be brought into existence. What's that? He breathes the breath, his spirit, into man. Remember a few weeks ago we were talking about death, and it says what happens to you when you die? Your spirit goes back to him. God gave humankind his spirit. You see, that's why I say animals have a... A soul, a body, a soul, and a spirit. No, let me rephrase that. I said that wrong. We are a triune. We were made in the image of God, body, soul, and spirit. An animal has a body and a soul. That is scriptural. A lot of people go, oh, that's wrong. No, that's what scripture literally says. The word for life is, is nephish in scripture there. When it says the life of a creature is in its blood, it literally is saying that... The nephish of the creature is in its blood. Nephish is the same word for soul. The soul of a creature is in its blood. And I use this example all the time when I'm speaking on amazing animals and whatnot, like a dog. A dog has life. It has a soul. Because when you're reading in Genesis, it talks about animals having nephish, life. A soul. However, they don't have that spirit. What is a soul? Well, I think it is your emotions in part. That's why we have words like soul music, soul food, you know, those kind of things. But your emotions are tied to that. A dog has emotions. I always say, you know, you come home and it's, you know, freaking out. And you say, down, and it pees on the carpet. And it, they've got emotions. You can't deny that. Our emotions are tied to the soul. But we have a spirit, too. You add a spirit to that. And it just changes everything. It heightens those emotions. It allows you to have that reasoning capability. Animals don't reason. We've talked about that before. Jude talks about it. You know, ungodly people like, uh, you know, animals like unreasoning animals, it says, that operate on instinct. Anyway, what I like about that, all of that is all to bring you to this word here, I will create Jerusalem. Something new that was not in existence is going to be brought into existence. There's no way we can understand what this new Jerusalem is going to be. But I can tell you it's going to be good. It's going to be exciting. Verse 2, cruising right along. <laughs> Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. When Jesus says, Behold, I go and prepare a place for you, I think this is what it is. Something new 
Not the Jerusalem of today. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. I think it'll probably set down on the physical Jerusalem of today. Don't know. But when we talk about Mount Zion and all these other verses in the millennial reign, clearly God's eye is on that place. And that's why I think when you go there today in the physical, there's a spiritual feeling about it. Something different. But it is new. Hebrews 13, 14, For here we do not have an enduring city. Jerusalem is not going to be an enduring city. But we are looking for the city that is to come. That's what he's talking about. Hebrews 11, verse 16, Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I hate cities, but I think I'm going to find one that I like here. Hebrews 12, 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. So, you want a little clue about what this new city is going to be like coming out of heaven? Thousands of angels, thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Sometimes when I, I'm not a big concert guy, but when I go to like a Christian concert and Sometimes when the music stops and everybody's singing, or at church sometimes when, when they'll stop the music and everybody's a cappella and singing, man, it just gives me shivers. Can you imagine thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly? That's one of your clues to this new city. John 14, too, I just mentioned it before. In my Father's house are many rooms... If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Now, I think coming up here, I'm going to give you some dimensions of this thing. So I'm not going to go into that tonight in case you're wondering. But it's huge. Huge. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful. Just beautiful. Isaiah 52, verse 1 says, Awake, awake, O Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Isaiah 52 here talking again. Now it's easy for us, and I think there is a physical aspect to this that God is speaking of the millennial reign and those kind of things too. But I really think that the main context of what this is is the new city coming out. But when we read all these verses in the Old Testament, our mind always wants to go to the present Jerusalem, or maybe even a Jerusalem of Jesus' day or something. We're not thinking about Revelation 21. But I think that's what the context of Scripture is telling us to do. Now, as we saw way back in the beginning of Revelation, in chapter 3, verse 12, it said, we will become pillars in the temple of our God. Yet, we see that Jesus is the temple. Remember he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Why? Because you are in Christ. And Christ is in you. It's beautiful. In Revelation 3.12 it said this, To him who overcomes I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. Again, there's a physical aspect. Yeah, you're never going to leave the New Jerusalem, but I also think you're never going to leave the presence of God. You know how frustrating it is for me day after day to leave the presence of God because of my own flesh, my own busyness of life, to, to get my brain to turn off from all the things that are going through there. I will never leave the presence of God. That's another clue to what this new Jerusalem is going to be like. That'll be awesome. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, 
the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from my God, and I will also write on him my new name. Another clue. Clue is, you get a name. The name of the new Jerusalem, somehow, on you. Don't go there. I know what you're thinking. Anyway, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. The tabernacle of God is with men. Wouldn't you like to know a little bit more about that tabernacle? I haven't done the tabernacle message for you guys yet. I think this year, I, I don't think I did anyway, I think this year during Sukkot, that needs to be one of the messages. And so take a mental note of this. That the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. The word dwelling in some translations is what here in the New King James is translated as tabernacle. Okay, uh, or this word dwell. He will tabernacle with them. It's the same thing when we see that the word became flesh and dwelt among them. Talking of Yeshua. That word, it literally says the word became flesh and tabernacled among them. Now, Again, going back to how we began. See the physical? When Jesus came, he did come and tabernacle with us. But that was just a foretaste of Revelation 21. I mean, clearly this has not... When Jesus came, we didn't get this. But he was giving you a taste. He, again, as we go through Sukkot, you're going to see he gave you a taste of Sukkot at Sukkot too. A taste of the end. Same thing with this, that the word dwelt among us for that short time as an example of a final fulfillment here in chapter 21. I just think it's crazy to think that what the earthly tabernacle foreshadowed is going to be a reality here. And yet, how many Christians know very little about the tabernacle? We love to talk about heaven, but yet we hate to study what heaven is going to be like. You read the book of Exodus. The tabernacle is discussed in over 50 chapters of Scripture. Nothing is talked about more than the tabernacle other than pictures of, of Messiah. 50 chapters, and yet... Most Christians, when they go to read about the tabernacle, are bored to death. I get it. You know why you're bored? Because you don't get it. Same thing with the law of God. You know why you think it's legalism? You know why you, you think, oh, no, 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 we don't want the law? Because you don't get it. It's about Jesus. When you understand the tabernacle is about Jesus, and if you want to know what this new Jerusalem is going to be like a little bit, then study the tabernacle a bit. Because the tabernacle of God is going to be with men. So, to understand what's going on here, we really do need to look at the Feast of Tabernacle, or the Feast of Sukkot, or the Feast of Ingathering. What, there's the Feast of Nations, it's also called. Like I said, we will talk about that more at Tabernacles. I'm going to touch on a couple of things tonight, maybe. Ezekiel 48.35, now this seems to be more of a millennial reign type thing. So chapter 20 of Revelation, not chapter 21, but I bring it up here because of God's presence being with people. I think in the millennial reign, it, it starts there. God's presence is definitely there. And you are, he is tabernacling with you. So I think really... When we're talking about God's tabernacling with men, you get both chapter 20 and 21 and 22. All of it. The distance around will be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. 
Once that comes, the Lord is never leaving you. I mean, He never leaves you now. But it's going to be different. I think it's going to be like the experience the disciples had more. How many times have we thought, man, can you imagine what it would have been like to have been one of those disciples? You're sitting next to God, Jesus. You could talk to Him. Yeah, you'll get your chance. Clues. Zechariah 2.10, even Zechariah joined in and prophesied, Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Yeah, when Jesus came the first time, yes, he lives in us in his spirit, and I do not mean to, to lessen the importance of that at all. What I'm saying is, that's only a foretaste. That's why you keep wondering, can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of those disciples? 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Just as Adam and Eve literally walked with God in the garden, we too, in our glorified bodies, are going to have that same blessed opportunity what began in Genesis is reaching its fulfillment in Revelation. That is just a beautiful, beautiful picture. I don't have time to start on the Feast of Tabernacles. So I'm going to do one more verse. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The former things passing away, there's a new heaven and a new earth. What happens to this one? Peter tells us it's going away with a great noise. I've talked about that before. Remember the Big Bang hasn't happened, it's a coming. This present earth will indeed pass away. The heavens roll up like a scroll. The stars fall from the sky. All of those things. Isaiah 25.8 says, He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. That means you can take it to the bank. Man, that is exciting. Can you imagine a world where there's no more tears, no more sorrow, sadness? I think that it's impossible for us to understand that we've been born into a cursed, sin-filled world. And people say just the same thing in the Garden of Eden. How could people walk in the Garden? I mean, you mean they never could stub their toe and get hurt? No, I, I don't know how that works. I don't know if you're just kind of floating along. or I, I don't know. There's no way I can understand that. And there's no way that you can understand. You mean you're never going to like turn around and bump into somebody. Or you're never going to you know, accidentally get hurt? No pain? Because here on earth, pain's a good thing. It protects you. I mean, you could you know, put your hand on a stove. And if you don't feel the heat, you're going to have problems. There you don't need any of that. That is something to look forward to. Isaiah 35.10 The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. You're going to enter Zion. Not the Jerusalem of today. The new Jerusalem. Everlasting joy. I mean, imagine the, the, the most joy that you've ever had, and it never goes away. Never. Sighing. Frustration. Revelation seven seventeen For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Another clue what this new city is going to be like. God is going to be sitting at the center of the throne. 
Isn't it interesting? It seems that in the Garden of Eden, where was the tree of life placed? In the center. There are many scholars who think the tree of life was Jesus. Yeah, it was a physical tree, but there was a spiritual aspect of that giving life. Jesus, because remember, they got kicked out. They can't come back to eat of the tree of life or they'll live forever. So again, clues. He will lead them to springs of living water. Where did the waters of the, in Genesis come from? From the center of the garden. Where is the waters coming from here? From the center. Right from Jesus, his throne. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I'm telling you, if you just kind of focus, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, maybe for the joy that he has set before you, you can endure the things of this world. Maybe we need to stop getting distracted and keep praying and say, God, I'm done with this world. I want to seek after you. I want, I want to experience you more. I want to... Let me put it this way. It's not going to come through osmosis. By you going and sitting in church, you will not experience the joy of your salvation. Honestly, even by you just reading your Bible, by you know, good discipline every day, you will not experience the joy of your salvation. The devil knows the scriptures better than you do. He does not experience the joy of his salvation because he doesn't have it. You see, it's not going to come through osmosis. It's going to come through a relationship that you have with Jesus. And when you have that relationship with him, reading the word isn't a discipline. It's a desire. When you have that relationship with Jesus, following the law is not legalism, it's a joy and an honor. When you have that relationship with Jesus, keeping the Sabbath is not legalism. It's a gift from God that you look forward to week after week after week. Because the Sabbath was made for man. You weren't made for the Sabbath. It was made for you. That means for your good. You weren't made for it to protect it and to be able to like, oh, because I keep the Sabbath. Now all of a sudden the Sabbath becomes holy. No, God made the Sabbath holy. You can't make the Sabbath holy. God did that. I don't care if you pray all day and read your Bible all day on, on the Sabbath. That doesn't make it holy. What makes it holy? God. Period. Because that's what it says in Scripture. That means that if you read your Bible all day on Sunday and you go to church all day on Sunday, that doesn't make the day, that day holy either. You're right. The Catholic Church made it holy. Now again, I'm not saying you can't go to church on Sunday. What I'm saying to all the Pharisees is this. Have we added to the word of God things that are not there? There's no question. I mean, anybody can tell you that the Sabbath was changed by the Catholic Church. It even says it in the Catholic doctrines that that is a sign of their authority. Now, we can justify it all we want. But let me tell you, when you have a relationship with Jesus, there's nothing that replaces the Sabbath. Nothing. Because that's the day God made holy. We should desire a relationship with Him. But if our desire is for the things of this world and what it has to offer and the money and the 
fame or whatever. I could list a thousand things and I say this all the time. But nobody listens. Sometimes I have a hard time listening to myself. I'm telling you that I want the things of this world to grow strangely dim so that I can fix my eyes on Jesus. That nothing is going to keep me from looking to this. This is what I want. This is what our eyes should be on. Yes, we have to live in this world. Yes, we're going to have to go to work. Yes, we're going to have to do those things. But you know what? Take Jesus with you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. So don't you leave him at home. Have a relationship with him so that he's there all day long. Say no to the TV. Say no to sin. I don't know if any of you are caught up in pornography. I, I don't know if any of you are, are, are caught up in greed or, or, or maybe uh, lying, cheating, stealing. I, I don't know what's in your heart. You do, though. Say no. And start looking to this. We're going to stop there on verse 4. We'll pick up on verse 5 next week. Don't miss Sukkot's tabernacle. We'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word and what is to come. God, we look forward to this day. And as we honor the Sabbath, Lord, let us be reminded of what we are I guess looking forward to. Let us just take a step back and say, God, I want to follow you. I want to follow your word. I don't, I don't want to follow a church. I don't want to follow a theology. I don't want to follow a doctrine. I want to follow the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord Almighty, who is worthy of praise glory, honor, power. Lord, you alone. Help us with our unbelief. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Because as you know, we're weak. But we can do all things through Christ who lives in us and who strengthens us. In the name of Yeshua, Jesus, we pray. Amen.